we can all agree, I think, right now that soil is good on a farm field, but it actually becomes a pollutant when it's in a reservoir and it, and it causes the reservoir to silt up and causes the river to silt up and it ends up down in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, bringing phosphorus with it, causing algal blooms, leading to a, de a dead zone. So it's a double problem of, of soil and nutrient loss is that it's, you're losing it from where you want it and you're getting it somewhere where you don't want it. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk about how we grow food and how the task of agriculture will have to change if we want to continue to feed people in coming centuries. And while this seems like a broad, big-picture topic, it actually carries a personal resonance for me. My grandfather was a farmer in Kansas, my father worked as a biologist and an environmental educator, and my brother-in-law, David Van Tassel, who I interview in this episode, is a research biologist at the Land Institute, which for the past 40 years has been one of the most forward-thinking research and policy organizations when it comes to making agriculture sustainable. Now, the Land Institute is located just four miles from the house in rural north-central Kansas, where I stay when I'm not traveling. And while Kansas is not usually the first place people think of when they think of scientific innovation, the ideas being explored at the Land Institute are as forward-thinking in terms of long-term food security and sustainability as any of the tech ideas being explored in places like Silicon Valley. David and I dig into these ideas over the course of the interview as we examine the 10,000-year history of agriculture and where it stands today. Among other things, the Land Institute is interested in shifting the way we grow staple foods from a system invested in annual crops to a system that integrates perennial food plants. Now, one basic distinction between these two kinds of plants is that annual staples like wheat and rice have shallow roots and require that farmers scrape the soil, plant seeds each year, and add fertilizers to ensure a healthy yield. Perennials, on the other hand, don't require annual replanting and have deep and complex root systems that do a lot of the work of keeping the soil healthy without the risk of erosion or the need for adding energy-intensive fertilizers. Now, this is something of an oversimplification of topics that David and I address with more nuance in the interview itself, but I wanted to frame things up front so that it's clear that soil is a precious and fragile resource, one that is important to our long-term well-being is fresh water and renewable energy, and that it's important to develop strategies to protect and maintain our soil resources, not just in our lifetime, but in centuries to come. I talked to David Van Tassel in the living room of my own home in Kansas, and our conversation starts with some Agriculture 101. A good place to start would be talking about what agriculture is. I think, you know, everybody eats, uh, but a lot of people, including probably a lot of people who are listening to this now are fairly urban people who get their food from supermarkets of various type and don't have a lot of connection to how it's grown. So let's just start really broad. Um, what is agriculture? <laughs> and and that was one part of the question too, how is it practiced today? And then how did it start? Well, maybe it's easier to start with, with how it started. Um, and just to frame things here, in a way, the Land Institute, where you work, is trying to solve the 10,000-year-old problem of agriculture. Yeah, that's, that has been one of our um, kind of uh, uh, slogans, I guess. Uh, not everyone immediately knows what that means, so it might help to, to kind of unpack that. So 10,000 years, that, that refers to the fact that about 10,000 years ago, the first 
crops began to be domesticated. And what that means is that for, for thousands of years, of course, people were harvesting plants out in the wild, and, and those could have been fruits, they could have been tubers, uh, the grains of, of wild perennial grasses and, and other plants. And of course, hunting also. Um, and Hunter-gatherers, basically. Yeah, hunter-gatherers, basically, um, like a lot of um, primates, you know, um, gathering, gathering food, eating, eating plants and animals. And at some point, there was a transition uh, in, in a number of places around the world, kind of simultaneously, especially, of course, in the Fertile Crescent and China and India and, and um, Peru and places like that, where people began to kind of tend some of the wild plants. And, and that's called kind of proto-agriculture, where instead of just finding some plants and, and, and digging them up and and eating them, you actually start to, to kind of manage them a little bit and, and clear out weeds or, or keep drive off pigs, wild pigs, or, or whatever might be competing for those foods, and gathering them and bringing them to a village, perhaps. And at some point, those practices led to a kind of, of Darwinian uh, evolution, natural selection, where the plants that that regrew probably around the villages of, of our ancestors um, were the ones the ones that, that regrew and produced a lot of seed that were attractive that were easy to harvest were the ones that then got got kind of carried along to the next place and, and either by accident or deliberately kind of scattered or something. In fact, one of the theories is called the dump heap theory of domestication that. People just brought the wild seeds back to their village and, and then processed them there. And then some of them got thrown out on the dump heap and being a nice disturbed, fertile spot, um, things would do well and then people would see them there and then and do it again, and either by accident and eventually intentionally. And so, so domestication of, of plants especially involves both a change in people that people started eventually deliberately planting the seeds, or scattering them at least, and changes in the plants. So the plants became uh, faster growing, produced more uh, seeds, bigger seeds, seeds that, are, that stay on the plant and don't just drop to the ground, that are easier to harvest, although a lot of our crops until very recently were, were not at all that easy to harvest. You have to pull up the plants and bring them somewhere and dry them and beat them with sticks or something. And, but anyway, relatively somewhat easier to harvest. What were some of the earliest plant, uh, food plants to be domesticated? Do, do we know? Yeah, so, so rice and wheat and barley are, are some of the, the first, and, and then corn probably. And a few other things were pretty early, I think. Some of the le uh, lentils and, and chickpeas and things like that may have been fairly early, but definitely rice, wheat, corn. Interestingly, those, are, those three are still the, the top three foods of humanity. Which, which is an interesting thought, which will eventually come full circle to your work, which <laughs> right. is sort of the idea of inventing new staple foods or right. de developing exactly. new staple foods. Now, um, so is this a sort? Does this count as natural selection if 
if suddenly humans are regrowing plants that have seeds that stay in place better and seeds that have a bigger yield and other indicators does that count as natural selection yeah. or is that sort of human selection well well it's both because humans are natural so um, when you think of humans as just an animal then we're no different than than bees or or squirrels or something squirrels collect nuts and you know certain trees have 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 taken advantage of that or or have figured out how to how to deal with that or um you know the the way the insects some insects have taken over spreading pollen so in the same way our ancestors took over the job of spreading seeds from the plant's point of view we were a convenient agent to spread their seeds and they took advantage of it they adapted to to become more attractive to us almost in the same sense that probably dogs have developed uh, certain anthropomorphic personality traits right uh, right yeah yeah and in fact dogs Dogs probably were domesticated at least as early as, as rice and, and things like that, maybe even earlier. And do you know why were they domesticated as companions or? Dogs? Yeah. I know this isn't your specialty, yeah. but. Well, one of the theories is that they kind of domesticated themselves, that they, they uh, got a lot of benefits by hanging around villages and, and people, you know, maybe eating the scraps or the, the carcasses or something. And the one the wolves, which is the ancestor of dogs, when they're puppies, they, they aren't very afraid of people. But, but at a certain point, they, they develop, their brain develops to the point where they, they suddenly become very wary of people and they won't come close to people. Well, in a way, it was, that was a disadvantage. And the, and the dogs or the wolves that had, some small genetic change that kind of kept them in this innocent puppy stage basically permanently they were the ones that could then hang around the villages better and and take advantage of of humans and of course then at some point humans developed a relationship and and they became a mutual um, partnership for hunting and for for protecting themselves from probably ironically, from other people who had dogs. That was one of the reasons why you needed a dog is that someone else had a dog. And the people who, those dogs would come and eat your sheep or, or um, you know, terrorize your village or something. And so you needed a dog. So <laughs> it's a little bit like, why do, why do males exist? Males mostly exist to, to fight off other males. Interesting. If we're if we're if we're looking at big picture evolution <laughs> stuff, right? I mean, that's that's one of the questions. Not to digress too much, although this is deviate with Rolf Potts <laughs> podcast, uh, so we can deviate a little bit. Uh, one of the first questions of some of the evolutionary biology books I've read is why are men bigger than women? Mm, you know, right? And presumably the question is that over the years men have had to fight each other. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, a little bit like, and it has a and size has a bigger evolutionary advantage for males of the human species. Am, am I, am I, is that a good way of paraphrasing things? Yeah. Um, you might look at it as, as a collective. Our species has two forms. One is male, one is female. And it, and it's, there's some advantage in having some, some uh, different functions. A little bit like how there might be different kinds of bees in a hive that some um, 
are built for, for working and others are built for flying or, or defending the colony or something like that. And um, I think a lot of it does have to do with, with how many how many mates one male tries to tries to acquire and defend. If you look at the some of the animals that have a big harem, the males are huge, and they have to be huge just simply in order to fight off the other males. But there's an evolutionary advantage in that if they have a big harem, then their DNA is is being right, right perpetuated. But on the other hand, then that some in some environments, or if that goes too far, then it, it's possible that there there's not enough of them to help the females. Uh, provide food for the young and so then they fewer of their offspring would survive and so at some point there's a balance for every for every system like that where if you go too far in one direction then then it, that's called an invadable system or a unstable evolutionarily unstable system where some mutant that comes along and and you see this in some fish that there are males that are very small as well as the males that are big and the small ones just basically nip in and uh, when the big one isn't looking and mate with the females. They don't try to defend anything. They just basically, they just, uh, they're sneaky. And so because they're small and fast, the big ones don't even see them. And so that's an invadable system. That male is too busy trying to guard too many females or something. I, I, I may not be correct on that particular example. but Well, evolutionary uh, biology and sexual selection could almost be its own podcast. Right, right, for sure. Um, and then right. I, I think there's big questions about why did we, why did humans develop artistic and musical impulses? And those yeah. can be framed in the same questions. But right. we, we, we are deviating in a sense <laughs> from plant biology, but right. not really because this is sort of contextualizing right. um, what happened to mm. plants as humans started to have a hand in their domestication. And that domestication happened everywhere, right? Like uh, the, in the Americas and in Asia and Africa. They... Not quite everywhere. So that's another big question: is is why didn't why didn't it not happen everywhere? But it definitely happened multiple places. And one theory of why it didn't happen everywhere is that just sort of a little bit like the the QWERTY question with keyboards that once someone had got rice and it it spread around while well, the other people where it spread to didn't need to come up with their own. It got, it was just a priority effect that, that once, once a few good crops started spreading around, they kind of preempted the development of other good crops. And that's actually significant because it, the way I interpret that is that it means not everything that could have been domesticated was domesticated that people kind of stopped they got they got a few things that worked and then they switched over to that they stopped cultivating these wild plants they stopped harvesting wild plants and that means that that natural selection we talked about kind of stopped and so there's there is evidence that native americans had a number of of crops that were in north america that were kind of proto crops that were maybe going they were, they were along the road towards becoming full-fledged crops. But then probably maize came up from south, from south and Central America. And probably that kind of just nipped that in the bud. And so they never became crops. Maize became the Facebook of 
North American right. agriculture right. flattening. Right. Well, this is, again, sort of a teaser for where we're eventually going with this mm. conversation is the work that you're doing and, and, right. and revisiting agriculture in such a way to, to ask the question, are there other plants to be domesticated and how, how will that, how can that process actually might be more environmentally um, yeah, exactly. Advantageous uh, for the people who are uh, cultivating these crops, but I don't want to go there yet. Okay, I want to I want to stick on history for a little while, um, and that is so we have um, basically is it the big three? Is it is it um, wheat, rice? What are the big grains? Uh, that... Yeah, wheat, rice, and corn. Okay, um, wheat has the the most acreage in the world, but but I think. Rice has the most total production. Do we know where rice was first uh, domesticated? Well, probably in two places, probably in China and also in India. And so there's actually two different kind of sub races of rice. And one's called Japonica, which of course makes you think of Japan. But my understanding is it's probably China. And the other is called Indica, which as the name suggests, probably is correctly i think i think modern molecular work supports that it really was domesticated somewhere in the region of what we call india now what about wheat is that that's mesopotamia is yeah that... uh i think uh ethiopia and um you know maybe turkey that whole region several different types of wheat you know we call it all wheat but there's actually several species that are that are very similar and they can be crossed together, but they're it's a cluster of, of closely related species. And corn would be what, South America? Right, right. Central America and and probably Peru. Uh, I and I I can't remember if those were happening simultaneously or I'm not sure which one was the was kind of the first. Peru was definitely a center of 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 domestication of many things um, many different kinds of beans and i think peanuts and sweet potatoes and tomatoes potatoes many many things well the, there's those i guess the non-big three staples that were presumably um domesticated in place like isn't okra from west africa for example? right so yes there were some sorghum and okra and I think watermelon are from from Africa and some millets and India the you know the the rice and maybe sugarcane I think um, in India yeah I can't remember exactly all of them but and then things like wheat and barley and some of the lentils and um, and just so just so listeners know we're sitting on the prairies of Kansas right, right. now so your expertise is centered on on prairie ecosystems is that correct well um i guess i would say our expertise at the land institute in some ways that we we certainly pay attention to the north american prairie but not all of the crops that we work on are from there and so we look at we look at the prairie as as a guide or a, an example of what's possible um, but not necessarily 
we're not necessarily prairie ecologists or prairie specialists. And I know that your professional travels have taken you to Argentina and Uruguay. They've taken you to South Africa and China and Australia. And I want to get to that eventually, mm. but I sort of want to tease out this tantalizing mystery of one that suddenly there was this um, uh, monopolization of the food idea industry at some point <laughs> where we sort of became wheat, corn, and um, rice. And coming back to a question that sort of started this conversation, the problem of agriculture. So mm. 10,000 years ago, roughly, right. I mean, these are very soft numbers. Right. We have domesticated all kinds of food, but and the big, and the big three are these grains. What's the problem? Well, the problem is a is a recent problem. The problem is not exactly agriculture. The problem is us. So we became too numerous. <laughs> the early agriculture, and I've seen this in in southern China, and it's quite common in places like um, well uh, Laos and and parts of Indonesia and um, other parts of Southeast Asia and, and presumably other parts of the world where where crops are grown by just clearing forest on a hillside, burning it, burning the trees, burning the vegetation, and uh, scattering seeds in that, you know, black bare ground. And the grain, in this case, it's something called upland rice, which is a kind of rice that isn't being grown in the, the classic terraces that you probably picture when you think of rice. It looks more like a wheat field in Kansas. It's just, you know, a rolling field with, with grain, with, with green grass and then ultimately grain. Well, when you, after you cut that, that rice, then the ground is bare. And then when it rains, which it does a lot in those regions, the soil washes away and or becomes depleted and degraded. And so typically in those systems, which was probably how most of agriculture started, before we had iron plows, you just you just used fire and and um, and simple axes and things to clear land. Then then they would move on and let just let the forest grow back and go clear another half acre spot somewhere else and and do the same thing, and that works pretty well as as long as you don't try to come back until that that field has been sitting there for 20, 30, 40 years, and the soil has has kind of recovered. Some organic matter is built up again. Um, you never can get necessarily get back a horrible gullying event, but just just kind of soil degradation and loss of fertility can be reversed with with many years of a of a jungle or something growing on it. But now that we basically have cleared the forests on any and all land that's that's remotely cultivatable. We, and we have to because of the numbers of human beings there are now, that's not feasible. And so now we're in a system not of small little patches of, of annual crops, annual meaning that they, they grow for less than a year and die and then have to be replanted, surrounded by perennial forests, so perennial meaning they, they live many, many years, sometimes thousands of years, and they just come back after the winter or after the dry season, regrow. Um, they, there's, a, there's a constant permanent network of roots that's physically trapping the soil, holding the soil, putting carbon down into the, into the soil. 
So as long as there was a little tiny spots of annual grains and disturbed soil in a matrix of, of perennials, that was okay. Now that there's little tiny spots of forests and, and national parks and things in a matrix of plowed or sprayed annual crops, it's a completely different story. And so that's the, the problem of agriculture is that when it becomes too large, it starts to undo itself. It starts to create the conditions that lead to, to soil erosion, soil degradation, which make it then difficult to do agriculture. In a way, agriculture is the victim of its own success, right? Because exactly. domestication of plants and uh, sort of allowed hunter-gatherers to settle, create towns and cities and administration, an administrative class, right? You know, this is sort of part of, part of human history. And then as, as cities grew and, and, and populations were able to have surplus food and, and life expectancy became longer, then suddenly um, humans were no longer minority in, in, in the wilderness. Right. Uh, but were actually much more in control of their environments. Right. There's a lot of speculation about and, and difference of opinion about whether agriculture enabled cities to the idea of cities or the physically underwrote cities or if cities kind of happened first and and then required agriculture and in some ways it doesn't really matter from my point of view it just we know that it happened and we have both things now agriculture and cities and we have to deal with it um, although it is interesting to, to, to think about what might have been done differently or how how might we have ended up on a different path and in many ways I don't think we would have I don't think it's that our ancestors were were stupid or lazy or anything like that it's almost I think it's almost inevitable that in place after place around the world they ended up with these short-lived fast-growing grain crops annuals annuals as well as every place also has a group of of fruits and nuts and vines and those are perennials. It's just that they are not typically the staple crop. They're typically something that provides vitamins or, or flavorings and uh, stimulants like coffee and tea and things like that. That feels like another point we're sort of moving toward eventually, uh, which is the idea that and again, just to sort of redefine for listeners, we have a, a perennial might be like an apple tree, right? That's one kind of perennial, yes, for sure. Where you can go back, you don't pull up the tree or kill right. the tree, it, it, it bears apples every year. Right. Whereas wheat, which right. we have a lot of here in Kansas, is planted every year, harvested right. every year, right. and then retilled. Right. It's, a, it's an annual. There's, right. there's not a plant that's there that just grows wheat every year. Exactly. It has to be replanted. Uh, and so I think the distinction, and again, we'll come back to this later, is that all of these staples are annuals. The big three are annuals. They are now. They are now. A few of them started off probably as perennials, or at least as kind of short-lived perennials, like rice, for example. The wild, many of the wild ancestors of rice, and actually of wheat too, um, and some of, of the corn ancestors are perennials. And it seems that 
even in the case where they where the wild plant was still a still a perennial the just the the act of growing it from seed of scattering that seed and then harvesting whatever came up fastest and produce the most seeds probably drove it towards being an annual even if it started off as a perennial so in some cases nature turned them into annuals first probably in the middle east after the ice age there was a huge drying out one way that plants get through seasonal drought is just to become an annual to not try to survive just survive as a seed basically and so there's a lot of annual grasses in that part of the world and so it's not surprising that our ancestors picked one of them well, a few of them, wheat, barley, oats, things like that. Rice is another, and, and sorghum are examples where, where probably they started with something that was at least partially perennial. And the point is just that the way that this natural selection works, when people don't know what they're doing, people are in some ways serving the plants, you know, as well as themselves. Just naturally, unless they were really thinking about it, they would end up picking the ones that produced the most seeds first, quickest, and did not save anything back to put down deeper roots or to, to sort of save for tomorrow, you know, it's kind of the, the ant and the grasshopper thing. So we maybe have taken ants and turned them into grasshoppers. Well, this is another thing that we're going to come back to, the idea that, you know, we have annual cycles, the earth revolves around the sun, but every year is a little bit different. Right. And unless you're looking at agriculture in 50-year or 200-year cycles as well as annual cycles, you're going to miss out on things like maybe in a, in a good year that the, the best seeds are the biggest ones or, or the, the, the seed pods with the most seeds inside. But in a drought year, the roots, which you don't usually think about, are going to be an important thing. Um, and again, not to bury the lead, so, so really the Land Institute is trying to develop perennials. Right. A so, perennial staple grain. Right, exactly. So, so what we just talked about helps us to, to convince ourselves that this is not a, a, a stupid thing to do because you might ask yourselves, and we have for many years, you know, if, if this could have been done, why, why wasn't it done? Is there a good reason that our ancestors didn't do it? Either they tried it and it didn't work, or those perennial plants are just not capable of being domesticated. They just don't have the genetic variation or there's something about them that just won't respond. Um, you know, another, another way of putting it is maybe all the low hanging fruit has already been picked and basically anything that could have been domesticated was. And so we should just stick with what we've got. So we don't have 10,000 years of data of, of trial and error right. of, of what our ancestors on multiple continents tried to domesticate we don't know why if it is a convenience a, a short-term convenience versus long-term utility situation with with the grains we've developed right so you're you're really sort of um going through a little bit of darkness in that sense uh <laughs> right. since the land institute has only been around from, from since the 1970s but before right. we get to the 1970s i want to pinpoint a tipping point because we talked about how the agriculture didn't really become a problem when, mm. when humans weren't that populous on mm -hmm. Earth. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of scraping a bunch of vegetation off of a hillside is less of an issue when you have 30 or 70 years to let it regrow and come right. back. So at what point in human history did agriculture start to become a problem in terms of erosion and, and other environmental, um, the unsustainable right. factors? 
Well, I think the answer to that probably would be different for every place that you went. So we know that North Africa and parts of the Mediterranean and Egypt, you know, were tremendously fertile. They were the breadbaskets of the Roman Empire in their day. And presumably Rome itself and Italy was, was you know, tremendously productive. But clearly in places like Syria and Algeria and um, other, other parts of the former Roman Empire, they've lost most of their soil and it's for, for centuries now has been pretty unproductive. And parts of Ethiopia are, you know, very degraded, lots of soil degradation. And part of that's they've been doing it for the longest. That's one of the places that wheat um, originated. And so it's not surprising that the places that have been doing it the longest may have experienced some of the most um, serious soil, soil loss and soil degradation. And is it is is it true or, or just sort of a, a urban myth that the Sahara used to be fertile and that it was this is a human created hmm. landscape? I, I actually don't know okay. about that one. <laughs> okay, certainly north of the Sahara, and perhaps south, there's definitely evidence that the areas south of the Sahara are that there is desertification that the you know that that was human. Um, yeah, it may have been, and there's some actually some success stories now, so it's not all doom and gloom there are places where they're starting to like you know this is a classic classic example of colonial folly but the you know the european settlers kind of forced many of the local african farmers to cut down trees and grow kind of neat orderly european type plots of of staple crops and um now that that we've seen the results of that there's a movement to allow some of those trees that are native trees to grow back and to grow things like maize which you know is a useful crop and was something that was brought over as a result of the of the european colonization so it's kind of trying to take the best the best of what was brought uh, by the you know the colombian exchange of new and old worlds but also using some of the best of the of the pre-colonial traditions that that's been very successful those those systems where where the certain trees that that leaf out in the season that corn is dormant and then they drop their leaves and that's a, right when corn is needing the most light and so it really works to, works well and there's ex, there's evidence that in those places the desert is retreating so well, it's probably good to bring in another some more terminology, which is monoculture and polyculture. Does that apply mm. to this situation? Well, yeah, that's a good example of, of mixed cropping or intercropping or polyculture, where you have a, you know, different kinds of plants growing in the same field. So a monoculture is when it, uh, and a giant field is just one crop. Right. Whereas right. a polyculture integrates um, for, in, you know, environmental and, and production reasons, uh, it integrates more than one right. crop. It's a very old uh, way of doing things that is probably has has gone out of favor to some extent because it's not as easy to to use machines um, to mechanize that. So if you look at some traditional farms, I, I've been on a farm in Kenya, for example, where 
you know, there's a, a, a couple of fruit trees and in between the fruit trees is some sweet potatoes and then there's a patch of corn and, and in the corner are some beans and, and then there's some more, some pineapples. Everything's, it looks very jumbly to our eyes from Kansas, but it's perfectly manageable if you're doing everything on a small scale. Now, if you tried to use tractors to manage that system, it would become very difficult and probably you would end up, people would just drop a lot of those crops and specialize in one thing, one or two things. So yeah, that's, that's been a change. That's kind of a modern change. Now we'd be remiss to not point out that even with intercropping, if the intercropping is mostly still annual crops and if it gets too big, it, you'll still, you're still going to have the same problem of losing soil. It, it can solve a few problems and, and it's, you know, it's a good idea in general, but it isn't the only answer. So polyculture, agriculture, polyculture right. farming solves some problems, but it, unless it's, if it's purely annual crops, then it doesn't solve all the environmental problems that are not without, by. not without really intensive kind of husbandry of the, of the soil. So conceivably you could conceivably and and there are, there are there's a there's a, a fascinating book called farmers of 40 centuries that was written by an american agronomist turn of the last century he toured uh farms in china taiwan um maybe the philippines i can't remember exactly definitely china and was just fascinated by traditional agriculture in those regions and he reported the the care that people took in China to to the extent of of periodically dredging the mud out of ditches at the bottom of a hill and carting it back to the top of the hill because they understood that they needed that soil and that by gravity it was just keeps moving down so if you have a society willing to do that and to take the the um, you know the night soil the human waste from the, the, the village and cart it every morning out to the field and put it, take it back up the hills and put it out on the fields. That's, that was his point. That's how they could do it for 40 centuries with an incredible amount of labor and, you know, a, a culture that had, had, had a number of centuries to figure out how to do this when you have a lot of people and to develop very intensive methods, but it's fragile. So, you know, if there's, a, if there's a famine and people leave, and there's not enough labor, then it can fall apart. Or if there's war, um, it's, it isn't, it isn't perfect. Well, this, this comes into, as we sort of move through history, the problem, the problems and solutions created by modernity, right? Because right. there's the idea of, having small plots in Kenya that are very uh, diversified and, and tended on a small scale. You have farmers in Asia um, using sustainable um, methods just based on human grit. But then you also have, I mean, you mentioned war. War changed with mechanization mm. and industrialization. Everything, mm -hmm. like technology, medicine, you know, mm -hmm. all of these problems, age-old human problems were suddenly addressed by technology but also created more problems. And so, I mean, you have sort of a futuristic idea that is semi-true of sort of GPS, semi-robotic mm 
um, you know, machines going across a field, harvesting tons and tons of grain, uh, and that that solves a food problem, right? A lot of people can be fed that way. It's it's sort of this tech technologically savvy uh, corporate model for agriculture. A lot of people are fed that way, mm -hmm. but you have problems like, well, you put fossil fuels into those uh, robot GPS tractors. Right. You are harvesting the monoculture because those aren't those robot tractors aren't going to work if there's diversified crops in a field. They work a lot better if it's one crop that's out there. Um, and is it safe to say, I'm, we're sort of moving towards the 1970s, which is when the <laughs> Land Institute, your employer, decided that the problem of agriculture was bigger than what might be called Band-Aid problems, like... Um, creating more yields through technology and through fossil fuel inputs. And I'm, I'm being very jargony for my listeners, but basically it's like you pump a lot of oil out of the ground. You, 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 you solve a food problem, but you create an environmental problem because fossil fuels are not going to be sustainable forever and ever. And so is it safe, you know a lot more about agriculture than me, obviously, that um, the Green Revolution of the 1960s was the last great advancement through that method, through the technological solutions, and then the Land Institute was born out of the fact that we can, we can use technology to create more food, but that comes at an environmental price, and if we're not thinking long-term, then food sustainability is gonna be a big problem for the human race. How, how well did I do paraphrasing? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah that's, that's pretty good. It's, um, it's so complicated. And there's no, there's no one villain, right? So it's not just that, that fossil fuels or mechanization are the problem. And that's one, one reason Wes Jackson came up with this phrase about the problem of agriculture. It's not just the problem of modern agriculture. People a thousand years ago or, or several thousand years ago were quite capable of deforesting huge parts of continents with stone axes or, you know, simple iron tools or fire or fire and, and quite capable of, of causing massive soil erosion and civilizations collapse because of it. In fact, that's one, you know, there's environmental degradation is one of the common explanations for why some civilizations. Can you collapsed. give some examples of civilizations that, well, you might argue the the Roman Empire itself, but um, the Mayans, it's it's thought. Um, the Anasazi in North America, um, clearly some some of the civilizations in in the Middle East that rose and fell are are, are examples. Um, I think it could be said, again, not to go on too many tangents, that one reason why Egypt was so successful for so long is that actually the Nile was a pretty predictable yeah. source of, of water and irrigation. Right. And, and it was less beholden to more fragile environmental fra factors. Right. Right. That's true. There are, there are some places that, where it seems to work and where you're getting us basically free soil being brought in by the Nile from the uplands of Ethiopia every year to replace anything you've lost and where you have this flooding and, and sort of natural irrigation. That's probably a place where you could grow annual crops forever. And there are certain favorable 
parts of the planet where that may be true. Seems like Northern Europe has a very mild climate that we don't see the dust storms and, and you know, tremendous gullying of, of soil that, that many of the rest of us experience. So they may be able to get away with things that, that can't be done elsewhere. And this is Northern Europe? Yeah, I mean, that's generalizing quite a bit, mm -hmm. but you know, not real steep, gentle rains, not a lot of drought or, or you know, heat events. And I'm sure there are ways they can improve, and they, I'm sure that they are experiencing some loss, soil loss and some degradation, but just a little more forgiving, just kind of not, they can't take any credit for it, it's just luck, you know. But other parts of the world have not been so lucky. Right, right. And, and then, so of course, it, that, that model got exported to Africa, as we were talking about, and it didn't work there and, in fact, caused a lot of trouble. So anyway, it's just there's, there's a lot of, uh, it's very complex that the agriculture itself is pretty, is, in, is kind of inherently um, not resilient, I guess. Uh, and, and then you're, you're right, though, that, that ramping it up with added inputs can it can solve some of the problems so so you can you can overcome you can have some degraded soil and, and still grow crops if you have irrigation for example or, or fertilizer or fertilizer right um, right and were those parts of the green revolution in the 1960 was was that was that driven by fertilizer and yeah. irrigation well so and actually, just just to put a pin in, in your previous point is yeah. that it's it's easy in this day and age to attach the prefix corporate right. to any enterprise and make it sound bad. Right. But it sounds like even though corporate agriculture has a lot of problems, they are sort of magnifications of the problems that have always beset agriculture. That... Exactly. And and there are many cases of of ancient types of agriculture or or very um, well-meaning, earnest. You know, we point out that some of the organic farms are 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 not really sustainable they experience erosion they you know they're better in in some ways but from the soil point of view if if they are mostly annual crops you know even if they're being farmed by virtuous you know amish or or uh, hippies or whatever <laughs> um they can still be losing a lot of of soil or, or nitrogen um, they typically depend on hauling in quite a lot of manure and compost from somewhere else so there's a bit of a it, it, you can easily make something work on a small scale but then if you try to replicate that on the the entire state of kansas where are you going to get enough compost for that to work you know that so anyway <laughs> it, it feels like that like compost like compost in it, it requires a, a cow that poops <laughs> fertilizer right maybe a feedlot <laughs> and that's a small version of what can also exist uh, when with the corporatization of agriculture in the mid 20th century, then suddenly sophisticated fertilizers, maybe nitrogen-based fertilizers were being used in agriculture. More, sci more scientific and technological solutions were being applied, but we still had the problem of annuals, right. of right. annuals and, right. and monoculture. And I love right. the phrase you have, which is from the soil's point of view. Okay. Anthropomorphizing <laughs> the soil here. But in a way, we we think of we think of oil as a as a resource, you know, that that is finite and that must be strategized and protected. But oftentimes, we forget the soil is also a, a resource that is really it's where we grow everything, and that 
gets Band-Aid solutions, be it a cart full of manure or a very sophisticated nitrogen um, fertilizer, as we're introduced in the mid-20th century. But now we should probably bring in the Land Institute yeah. uh, in the 1970s that comes in and says, whoa, people, we can keep putting in, be it manure or nitrogen fertilizers. We can continue to find ways to make things more productive in the short term. But eventually we're going to come into the same problems that these dead civilizations had years and years ago. And so you mentioned Wes Jackson. He's the guy yeah. who started the Land Institute. And so tell us a little bit about, about that. Yeah. And I want to come back to the question of soil and the soil's point of view, um, because that's, to me, that's where, that's where we need to be thinking. And that's where many of, many of us aren't brought up to, to think from that point of view, I guess. But uh, to get back to, uh, to 1976, um, Wes Jackson and his wife, Dana, um, co-founded the Land Institute in Salina, Kansas. He had been a, uh, a professor locally at Kansas Wesleyan University and gained something of a nat national um, uh, recognition for, for a textbook, essentially, that he put together. And then he went off to California to start a, one of the first environmental studies kind of departments. Wasn't satisfied with, with, with academia and kind of California politics and ended up coming back and starting the, the Land Institute instead after a few years to, you know, this was the 70s, to explore alternative energy and alternative housing and sort of uh, back to the land kind of stuff, self-sufficiency. And of course, you know, I, I wasn't around the Land Institute at that point, but the, the legend at least, and I've, I've of course talked to Wes many times, but the, this, this, the short story is that, that they began to, to, to see, and that sounds a little funny, but they began to see the prairie, the native grassland in a way that both Wes and Dana didn't as kids, because as kids growing up on farms in Kansas, that, those were just weeds. You either had crops or weeds. And the weeds out in the, in the, on the rangeland were good for cat, cattle, but no one bothered to necessarily learn the names of them or not more than one or two of them. And back in the 70s then, they actually started learning the names of the wild plants and seeing them. And, and they had this, revel, this, this revelation or this insight that here are these rangelands, and we're lucky in Kansas that we still have a lot of these that haven't been plowed up. And they've been grazed, or in some cases hayed, now since European colonization here. So for, you know, over 100 years, for sure. And they seem to be still productive, and no one, you know, no one... Currently, no, you know, European farmers are are fertilizing them or are applying pesticides on a regular basis, and yet year after year they're productive, and they have really good soil. They haven't lost their soil. Um, how can that be? How how can it be when the when the neighboring field that was plowed up and planted to wheat gave gave excellent wheat yields for for several decades, and then it started to decline once the soil fertility um, wore out the soils wore out, and ever since then we've had to put on, you know, many pounds of of nitrogen per per acre just to get back to the original yields. And, and yet, yet the wild grasses are doing fine. Right, right. In fact, a, another colleague of mine, Jerry Glover, 
um, a few years ago directly compared prairies on, on good soils, which is a little uncommon because most of the really good bottomland soils have, have been plowed up, but he found places where there were side-by-side -side prairies and then, and then crop fields that should have been on identical soils. And he found that, the, that if you looked at the hay that had been harvested from those, same, those grasses, those prairies, for over 100 years, they were, you were pulling off of that, that land as much nitrogen, so as much protein, basically, and as much um, carbon, really, carbohydrates, as you would in a, in a grain crop with no inputs. So th this was the, the sort of insight. It was, you know, he, this is a sustainable system. The, the only problem is we can't eat it. So, so, so again, just to, just sort of paraphrase for the layperson yeah. person is that there, there are these wild grasses that have all this vitality right. and, um, and good health and sustainability uh, and better soil. They maintain the soil better. It's just that we can't eat the plants. Right. Now, I want to tease things because we, mm -hmm. we have some ground to cover, but Wes Jackson started the Land Institute and started looking into these mysteries in the 70s. You joined the Land Institute in the, in the mid-late 90s, correct? 97. And now in the 2010s, the Land Institute has developed Kernza and, and, and Silphium, mm -hmm. which ha it's actually domesticated or begun to domesticate uh, what were formerly these prairie grasses. So I'm just sort of teasing this right. of, of where we're right. headed, that basically yep. we're telling a story that, that covers many decades and, there, and it has already yielded some success. And in fact, last night you and I had IPA beers at a local brew pub right. that had... Uh, grains of, of Kernza, which is a which was maybe part of that grass that your colleague was looking at uh, decades ago. So right. I just wanted to tease that. Go ahead and right. continue, but but um, this is we're going right. towards some solutions. Exactly. So yeah. So so this was the the kind of big insight was we we can see that it's possible for for natural perennial ecosystems. To be productive and to be harvested, and that's the key thing. It's you know it's kind of obvious that if you just set it aside as a national park, okay, maybe that can be sustainable. But these are actually working landscapes that have been grazed or harvested as hay, and harvesting as hay is a huge thing. You're you're pulling off tons and tons of grass every year and selling it to someone or or, or feeding it to be eaten by livestock. Yeah, right. And it's just as nutritious as grain to the cattle. It's just that cattle are capable because of the way their digestive system works and the bacteria that they they partner with. To they can they can digest cellulose and we can't and they they can take advantage of of that kind of biomass. And so so the so the big hypothesis then was well maybe agriculture could be as sustainable as that if we could figure out how to make grains that were similar in many ways to those prairies and the big the big feature that we think is important in in that in doing what they do achieving that function is this perennial root system so this permanent root system in some cases very deep to get water that's very deep in some cases very fibrous very dense um give us give us an example because there's a very dramatic illustration. If you visit the Land Institute, there's a big poster, mm -hmm. and it shows 
an annual, going back to our yeah, vocabulary, annual wheat, annual wheat above the ground right. and below the ground right. compared to a perennial plant. Is Kernza a good, a good yeah, example? Yeah, well, that's the picture there is Kernza. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's such a great visual because right. the roots on the annual wheat go down, what, six inches or something? Well, they, you know, the very longest one may go down three feet, but the vast majority are in the top six to eight inches. And then you look at a Kernza plant, and those roots go down what twenty feet. Well, they may. Uh, we the 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 picture you saw they they went down at least ten feet. Okay, so it's exponentially more that, that basically um, it's deeply rooted. You know that 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 the you have these grains that may have been domesticated in Mesopotamia or Ethiopia that are being planted in a place like Kansas, uh, and have very uh, very shallow. Um, uh, roots and it's it's what we eat, you know. It's it's the wheat that cr creates the food that we eat. But then you have these natural plants that have been growing for who knows how long, um, centuries, millennia in Kansas. And well, well, I should be clear that the Kernza actually is not from Kansas. Okay, it's actually it is actually from Central Asia. Oh, is it? Yeah, okay. from Afghanistan and Pakistan and and parts of Europe. Um, okay. Yeah, but uh -huh. but it, that that root system you're describing is very typical of our native grasses, in being very deep and 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 not just deep but massive. And if, so, tell us the advantage. One, describe the massiveness, and tell mm -hmm. us why ten foot ten feet of massive roots right are better than than six to eight inches of, of right. Roots. So, actually, on on most perennial plants, especially grasses, if you weighed up the total amount of above ground biomass or stuff and the total amount of below ground, which is much harder to do because it's all mixed in with soil, of course, you would probably find that there was at least 60% below ground and 40% above ground. So, and you know, maybe more, but more below, it's a little bit like an iceberg. The what's above ground is, is actually the smaller part of the plant. And yet it's the part that we always think of. And, and so even if you end up cutting off everything above ground with a perennial plant, you still have 60% of, of the carbon, of the um, other amino acids and things like that, at least some of them, not, maybe not exactly 60%, but a good, a good many of them <laughs> are below ground. And, and that's really important for... Uh, feeding the the uh, the food web below ground. So for pumping carbon from the atmosphere down deep into the soil, and that's feeding the worms. It's feeding the fungi, the bacteria. It's sequestering carbon, so it's taking carbon out of the atmosphere, which normally in you know human history wouldn't have been something people would have been proud of. But at this point in time, that is something people are interested in. But that carbon even if you don't care whether it's in the atmosphere or not. Um, in the soil, it's extremely helpful because, because all that carbon, those roots, the dead roots, the dead worms and, and dead microbes become organic matter. And organic matter helps, and, and the roots and, the, and all the activity down there, help create a soil that is more than just mud. It develops a structure, uh, it develops different chemistry. And it becomes much more like a sponge. And is is it fair to say it's a little bit more self-fertilizing? 
than an annual plant that it that it right re requires less of these fertilizing inputs because it's sort of doing its own work of fertilizing itself is that's, that fair that, to say that's that seems to be true although it's still a mystery exactly how that's happening so those prairies i told you about those hay meadows we're still not sure exactly where all that nitrogen is coming from a little bit comes from from lightning you know fixes a little bit and you get a little bit from showers during a lightning storm there's there's legumes which are in in this case native plants in the pea family that that work with very special bacteria to take nitrogen from the air and, and, and make it something that's usable to, by plants. Those together don't really account for how much nitrogen is, it seems to be there in the prairies. So there's a mystery actually. Yeah, there's a bit of a mystery. And, and some of it may be some of these bacteria, uh, of which are you know thousands and thousands of species in, in the soil. And some of them probably can also do this. They can take nitrogen from the air and turn it into proteins. And, but re regardless of what the actual answer to the mystery of this is, it underscores the fact that perennials are, are a much better and more sustainable right. way of, of practicing agriculture right. if we can right. develop a system of perennial agriculture. Well, I don't, and I don't want to, to oversell it or, or overstate the case. It's not, it's not alchemy. It's not that somehow they're creating elements from some from nothing, and probably the the safest thing to say is what is I think not contested at all is that these these dense permanent root systems are far more conservative of nutrients. So even if you end up putting on some phosphorus or some nitrogen, they will they will intercept almost all of that and hold on to it. Whereas with a bare soil or cropland that's often in, in a bare state or with these sort of weak root systems, a lot of the nutrients that get put on end up washing down through the soil and getting into the aquifer or getting into the, the groundwater or ultimately into the rivers and pollution. And pollution. Basically. Or it goes back up into the air. Um, they don't hold, they're, they're leaky. They leak. Okay. And annuals. Annuals. And, and you see that in nature too. Like if there's a, a landslide or something or, or some uh, horrendous you know uh, forest fire and and a forest dies and it basically has to start from scratch with with annuals so there's been a huge disturbance you can measure the water coming off of those watersheds and they're they're leaking they're full of phosphorus they're full of nitrogen other nutrients but as soon as after a few years after those ecosystems start to recover as shrubs move in and as finally trees move in those leaks get plugged. Those, those later communities, those perennial communities, whatever's left, they grab onto it and they hold it and they don't let that out. And so that's, that alone is, is worth what we're talking about. So these systems are, are very, uh, you know, they're very greedy <laughs> for soil. They hold onto it. They hold onto this nitrogen. They hold onto the phosphorus. And that's really a good thing. Because otherwise, it's it's lost in some cases forever, and it becomes a problem when it goes somewhere else, right? So soil is really really good, and I want to get back to kind of just how good soil is. But we can all agree, I think, right now that soil is good on a farm field, but it actually becomes a pollutant when it's in a reservoir, and and it causes the reservoir to silt up, and causes the river to silt up, and it and it ends up down in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, bringing phosphorus with it causing algal blooms, leading to a, de a dead zone. So 
um, it's a double problem of, of soil and nutrient loss is that it's, you're losing it from where you want it and you're getting it somewhere where you don't want it. Well, I want to come back to the, I want to hear you preach the virtues <laughs> of soil. Yeah. But I know that as the Land Institute confronted this problem, there was the idea of maybe hybridizing uh, perennials and annuals. Yeah, and we're doing that. Okay. And so explain that a, a little bit is that, I guess, what solutions are you up against? As I understand it, uh, plants like Kernza are full-on um, straight-up perennials, but you're right. also trying to take the good qualities and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of taking like a wheat and then a prairie grass and creating a hybrid that has good qualities of both. Right. So... So what I'm working on is is probably at, at one extreme of, of kind of what you were talking about, taking a, in this case, a native prairie perennial, very deep rooted, very drought tolerant, and trying to domesticate it. So just just breeding out, I, I grow out thousands of them every year. I select the ones with the biggest seeds or the most seeds or the, the healthiest plants. I cross them with each other. I take pollen from the good ones and mix it together and, and repollinate them all. So they're all... They're all mating with each other. So you're sort of doing in a concentrated way what the old Peruvian or Ethiopian or Chinese person did by taking the best yeah. grains. Um, now what they were doing was, was natural selection. So they didn't necessarily know what they were doing. And um, they were planting the ones, the plants that probably were the biggest plants. And so what we're doing is, it was, is a variation of that. It's called artificial selection. Okay. And it just means that it's, it's, it's not genetic engineering. Um, it just means you aren't always taking the biggest plant, the one that would be the most fit in a completely kind of free market capitalistic system, which is what a lot of natural ecosystems are, right? Survival of the fittest, survival of the biggest, usually the most selfish. So we're often selecting the shorter plants that that don't do a good job of some things that wild plants need to do like they don't blow their seeds around let their seeds blow around that's not fit if you're a wild plant they're becoming dependent we're forcing them to become dependent on us and by being shorter for example they work better together so it's a little bit more of a marxist system there when all the plants in the field are the same height and they're not all just striving to outcompete each other they actually end up wasting a lot less on just getting really tall and they can put a lot more into roots or, or seeds. So They're probably easier to cultivate too. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. There's many practical reasons for this and they don't fall over as easily. So, so we're doing artificial selection, but it's, it is a, it is the, it is the kind of accelerated cousin of natural selection and, and what our, our ancestors, our foremothers were doing 10,000 years ago. And, um, and then on the other hand, other of my colleagues are working on a different strategy, which, which isn't so different when you really, when you really look at it, but it seems different, which is to, to take some existing crops like wheat, like sorghum, which is a grain from Africa, like rice. And we're not doing the rice, but there are our colleagues in China are doing this. And then they find wild relatives of each of those things. And, and in some cases, in many cases, you can actually find some that will cross. So these have to be very close relatives. And there's often some problems when you first make those crosses. So it's, 
more or less creating a new species, which, which is something plants do. This is a natural thing that happens. Two species will, will cross and you'll get a third species. Um, we're accelerating that, we're kind of directing that. And this happens in, in animals too, like a lot of your listeners are probably familiar with mules, which come from a donkey, which is one species, and a horse mating. The, the mule is essentially a third kind of species. In this case, it's a dead end because it can't reproduce. But plants, in many cases, plants can, and so they can become kind of a new hybrid species. That's what we, that's what we, we refer to it as wide hybridization. It's a little bit different than when you hear about just hybrid corn or something. And then once you've made that new species, essentially, then you're still, still faced with a lot of breeding, which is similar to what I just described of growing out thousands of plants and selecting the ones that are the best. And so are you creating mule crops? Well, or is there a way around that? Yeah, well, so I, for example, tried this with, with sunflowers. So the crop I work with right now, Silphium, is it's not a sunflower, but I used to work with perennial relatives of the annual sunflower. The annual sunflower is the one everyone can picture in their mind. It's the giant yellow head. There are many perennial species of sunflowers, of true sunflowers. And some of them can be crossed with the annual. And I did that. But they were kind of these mules. So they did produce a few seeds, but not many. And then I would, I thought, well, we can just kind of select for improved fertility. And then I would plant those seeds out, and a lot of them would be sterile. And it, it, it just seemed like um, it, it, we never got any better. So we dropped that. So there's some cases where it just doesn't seem like it's working. In other cases, we've been lucky and there haven't been many problems. Sorghum's an example of that. And in other cases, we get, it's just sort of luck of the draw. Sometimes we get a, a, a sort of a new species, a mule that works, a fertile mule. And sometimes it's kind of a, a rare thing. But once you've figured that out, presumably you can, you can um, and, and, and using some DNA markers and sort of DNA fingerprinting can help, we can recreate that and develop a whole new population from those those fortunate combinations do you have success stories yeah so there are um there are now lines of well and there have been lines of perennial wheat for a long time people the russians did this back in the 20s and 30s and some in in california in the in the 30s and 40s so the idea has been around a long time to have a perennial wheat and there are lines that are stable um they're not super high yielding and and our uh, my colleagues have have developed lines that are that seem to be pretty stable. There still are some problems, and it's not ready for prime time yet, but we're making progress on that. The sorghum uh, is is looking really good. It's it's very perennial in places with mild winters. <laughs> And Kansas has very, as you know, very erratic winters. So sometimes they're very mild and sometimes they're mild and then they're suddenly harsh and then they're mild again. And that's really hard. And so we're still not quite there for, for surviving Kansas winters, but we, but my colleague, is Stan, is taking, and Fiona, are taking some of those lines and, and starting to try them back in Africa, which is where sorghum came from. And, and there, in, in many climates there, they're able to get through the winter just fine. So 
um, yeah, there's, it's starting to pay off. The rice work is really encouraging. Our colleagues in Yunnan province have been testing some of the perennial lines, which have yields very similar to the annual rice in villages in the mountains. And uh, I, I visited recently a village where 70 households were, were experimenting with the perennial rice and, and the villagers I talked to seemed genuinely pleased with it. And there, one of the, the sort of unexpected twists is that probably they're more interested in it because it's labor-saving than for any uh, do-gooder, you know, Mother Earth concern. Um, they don't have to plant it. Yeah, because traditionally rice is transplanted by hand, by women probably, uh, at least two times a year. A lot of backbreaking work, and as those villages age, a lot of the young people have left, there's concern that, that the older people don't, aren't able to do that kind of work. And so they're pretty excited to have a crop that can go for maybe, they've tried it now for, for four, I think at least three or four seasons, which means, you know, like a year and a half to two years. And it's, we just don't know how long they can go. If that, if that can just continue indefinitely or if they'll have to, if they'll kind of peter out at least this generation, this is pretty early days for perennial rice. And so there's still a lot of room for improvement of those varieties. So there's a lot of new data, basically. Yeah. Is, is yeah. that this, um, this push to get to go more perennial is, hasn't been happening for very long. Right, um, right, right. And it's a long-term thing. Now, is this part of the reason why uh, the Land Institute and similar organizations are nonprofits? Uh, because of the more institutional research organizations have to play politics and politics are a short-term game, whereas you're really trying to see this within the frame of 50 years, 200 years longer outcomes? Yeah, I think that's, that's fair. We have a lot of colleagues in universities and in, in government labs who, who are helping us with this. And 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 the climate is changing a little bit, but but no many pun intended. Yeah, yeah, but many um, many things conspire to make it difficult. For example, the way that people get tenure, they need to have results quickly. You know, in in a few years, they need to be cranking out papers. And if you're doing something where it, there's just a lot of cycles of a breeding before you really have anything to show for it, that's that's hard to do. Or if you're getting grants and those grants are for three years, you can't show a lot of progress in three years. You just can't. And so it's hard to propose that kind of work. And so I think that's been our niche is that our donors are um, amazingly patient with us, amazingly foresighted. They're a rare breed. You know, a lot of donors want to donate to something that'll pay off almost tomorrow. To, to feed the stray cats, you know, next week, or to keep the the ballet afloat for one more season, right? And our donors, our supporters, understand that the dollars they give us right now may not pay off for 20 or 30, 40 years. And that's both, you know, really touching and, and moving 
but also totally necessary because there's things like this that that won't that there's no other way to do it you have to you have to invest for a long time before there's any chance that they will pay off we, we as you said we started to see some early results with things like Kernza and being able to commercialize that Kernza, which is a, a perennial grass perennial that has grass wheat like quality yeah that 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 we and others have been working on for a couple decades now to to domesticate it's it's has the advantage of over some of our other crops of being crop like so it looks and grows about the same size and and timing of of many of our standard crops can be harvested with standard equipment and and processed in many of the same ways as something like wheat or barley the yields are still not up there so right now it's it's a it's a success in specialty markets but we you know we fully recognize that our work is not done and that we're still we're still a ways off from being able to really head-to-head -head directly compete with wheat or barley so it has wheat like qualities but it just doesn't produce as much not yet we we don't think there's any reason why it can't it's just that we have a 10,000 year uh you know uh liability here you know they have a 10,000 year head start on us yeah and obviously compared with 10 what people understood about genetics 10,000 years ago we can go a lot faster but we can't overcome 10,000 years in two years you know or 10 years <laughs> well a lot of this is pretty exciting you know just the idea that there's a lot of newness with what you're doing and then even just the paradigm of looking at things in in longer chunks and not that the three-year grant chunks right and it sounds like you have partners and confederates all over the world now who are trying to solve the similar problem of agriculture they're trying to develop perennial methods in their own ecosystems and in their own settings and, and geographies well we definitely have people working with us on the crops that we're working on on these kind of core crops including the rice i mentioned which we're not doing in kansas but we've been supporting that work financially for for years now and so there are people working on kerns of breeding in you know many states and, and several countries and I have collaborators in South America, in Argentina and Uruguay, working on, on Silphium, for example. But you're right, there are also people not really affiliated with us at all, but that are perhaps inspired by us or maybe just had the same idea independently that are trying to develop, you know, tree crops that have, for the rainforest, that are high in oil or starch. In other words, as you've said, could be used as staple foods, not just as kind of garnishes or fruits or flavorings um, I know the Swedes are looking at some some crops that might do well in their climate um, so there's there's many many opportunities I I could see a golden age of, of of new crops if we could get if we could ramp up the the support from the from the major you know the EU and the US and Canadian and Australian research foundations national research um, organizations for this kind of work there are I believe there are there are many candidate species around the world that I, I would love to see people working on salt tolerant perennials 
that could be irrigated with, you know, at least with partial, partially with salt water. Such plants exist. Um, you know, brackish, brackish art, uh, agriculture. Right. Well, it's it's potentially really important because of rising sea level, and a lot of our really good farmland is is almost at sea level, and so there's salt water is beginning to intrude, and we're losing some of those those acres, and and so we need to be thinking long term about how to adapt to that. I think uh, this is part of the excitement, the idea of, of, of peaking 50 years into the future and seeing what new crops are being cultivated and eaten, not just in Kansas brew pubs, but right. worldwide. Uh, that's an exciting part of it. And um, you mentioned rising sea levels. You also mentioned uh, preaching about the virtues of soil. Uh-huh. And since we're a little bit short on time, okay. maybe we can end... Maybe in the context of food security, food mm -hmm. sustainability, uh, the human race being able to feed, it, feed itself in future centuries, combined with things like climate change, um, preach the virtues of soil in that context. <laughs> okay. Well, let me, let me turn it around and ask you, what, what, what is it that, that uh, I think we can agree that... that Humanity now and in the future needs plants. We eat a plant-based diet, whether that's directly or indirectly. We live on, on the land. We're not ocean creatures. So what is it that land plants need in order to grow? What, what, what are the basic ingredients? No, this is not tricky. Just um, Well, as John Prine says, like sunshine feeding daisies. Um, so sunshine. Sunshine, okay, yep. Soil and water. Is, soil and water. Am I missing anything? Well, nitrogen? Yeah, what's the soil? Like what, that's what I'm getting at is, okay, now let's imagine, imagine, you know, a scree slope in the mountains. I'm sure you've hiked across some of those. Sure. They're hard to hike on. Yeah, hard to hike on. Just rocks, right? Which of those things does that, that system not have? That, that plants need. It has plenty of sunshine, right? Uh, you mentioned... Uh, water. Water. So it rains there, right? Sure. What happens after it rains? Uh, what, on scree or anywhere? Yeah, on a, on a lunar landscape or on a, on a rocky boulder field or a scree slope. Well, well, I'm thinking of a specific scree slope uh -huh. in, in Colorado where I okay. spent a lot of time as a teenager. Yeah. Um, it's, it's granite, you know, it's Pikes Peak area granite. Uh, and the rain will come and wash down the slope or, or, or evaporate after. And when's it? How, how long before it's dry? Uh, very, the, very soon. Actually, minutes, right? The Those... slope will dry up very quickly. Yeah, right? right. So plants can't grow with that. They can't grow on dry rocks, right? Right. But we have two of the ingredients you need for life, right? Water, light. You also have what's in the air that plants need. Uh, carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide. Do we have enough carbon dioxide on this planet? Uh, I'd, I'd Seemingly plenty and, and no fears about loot running out, right? Right. Oxygen, of course, likewise. It's plenty of that in the, in the atmosphere. And plants can, can contribute to that, of course. Nitrogen, you mentioned nitrogen. Atmosphere is full of nitrogen, right? Our atmosphere is mostly nitrogen. So gobs of nitrogen. No shortage of nitrogen. So here on this lunar landscape, not literally, but seemingly... We have, we have all these elements. We have all the elements. All the right elements. And, and okay, there's a few more. You know, phosphorus, you know, manganese. There's, there's many elements that are needed. Where did those come from? Ultimately, not... I, I don't know. 
Well, basically rocks, right? Okay. So they're they're there, right? They're they're under your feet okay. on that scree slope. Okay. Can a plant use those in a rock if it's in a boulder? <laughs> Not really, right? No, it's trapped, no. I guess. It's trapped, right? So from the plant's point of view, everything's there that it needs, and yet it can't grow. And what's the thing that makes that possible? Is soil, right? So soil is ground up rocks. It's what happens from erosion, from weathering, ground up and, and kind of dissolved or dissolving rocks. Suddenly, it's kind of a miracle, to me it's a miracle that you take what was a sterile, more or less sterile kind of landscape. If you just cr cr crush those rocks up, suddenly it changes. Suddenly, that crushed up rock stuff holds the water. It rains and it soaks into that and it traps it, right? Long enough for plants to use it, long enough to keep plants alive. Those crushed up rocks um, can now continue to weather and release phosphorus, can release other elements, iron and things that are in those rocks. The plants need those. The, now that the plants are, are able to get enough water to survive, they're able to um, to be able to take up that, that, those nutrients from the soil, they're able to sort of mine those as they move with the water. And they're able to, to put out leaves and capture that sunlight that otherwise was just wasted falling on those rocks, right? And now they're able to actually open up their pores and let in the air and be able to start getting carbon dioxide out of that air. All of that is made possible by this rather thin layer of crushed up rocks. Now, it really helps if those crushed up rocks have some organic matter in them, but that comes with time, right? That comes with, that's, a, that's soil quality. But soil quantity is basically how much of that rock material is there. And, and of course, there's rocks underneath all of us. There's rocks under us right now. There's bedrock, right? That rock is weathering. It is forming soil. It happens so slowly. It's happening at far, far less than a millimeter a year of soil being formed by that process. Unless you're lucky and there's a, a glacier that scraped the soil off Canada and dumped it on you, which is kind of what happened to... That's, so that's how Iowa and places like that have gotten very lucky, right? That they, a lot of their soil came from somewhere else. Um, or dust might, might settle and give you a, a, a lowest soil. But otherwise, it's, it's almost, from a human point of view, view it, it's a finite resource. I mean, te theoretically, it can be created, but it's on timescales of, of thousands of years. So it's this precious thing that's been distributed over the surface of the land in a very efficient way because light also fall and rain fall in this very distributed manner. And so if we lose that soil and if it all piles up in a few valleys, that's totally inefficient because the sun is, sunlight and the rain are falling on the whole surface, but we can't use them. And so I think that the history of the fate of humanity ultimately rests on how we conserve and, and protect that thin, magical layer on this planet.
This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to the Land Institute and its efforts to reinvent the way we approach agriculture, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Thank you.